The story is told about a group of pastors who once called upon the famous British preacher Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon was the pastor of London's New Park Street Chapel, later named the Metropolitan Tabernacle for some 38 years. And when, when these men met with Spurgeon one Sunday morning before the service there at New Park Street Chapel, they asked him what the key was to the church's fruitful ministry. Spurgeon, in turn, asked the men if they'd like to see the church's boiler room. Very curious response to that question. The men kind of nodded their heads, not knowing exactly what Spurgeon was doing, and Spurgeon led them to the basement. Of course, we know in that day, uh, the steam from the boilers is what created heat for a building. The boiler room was kind of a, a, of a, a building's powerhouse. Following Spurgeon, these men, men made their way to the basement where Spurgeon quietly opened a door, and to their surprise, they found 100 people praying. Spurgeon called his prayer gatherings the boiler room because he understood how true life-giving spiritual energy in a church is generated. It didn't happen through Spurgeon's personality or his, his remarkable teaching gift. It didn't happen for that church through well-polished programs. Spurgeon understood that God's purposes are carried out in the church as Christ's people pray. Friends, if I were to send out a church survey via the Church Center app, on that survey I was to ask you a question, what should we as a church do together in order to thrive? What should we implement to be effective in ministry? What should we do to be all that God wants us to be here in the Southwest Valley? How would you answer that question on the survey? Well, I hope many of you would write something down about faithfulness to God's Word. I, I hope that many of you would say that we need robustly biblical preaching and a deep theology that feeds our souls together. Yes and amen. I hope that, that many of you would say something about the body life here, of the importance of loving and serving one another and caring for one another in the church and growing a culture of discipleship where each member of the body is committed to each other's spiritual maturity. All of that is essential. But I wonder, on that type of survey, how many of us would have responded to that question with, the, with an answer about the importance of corporate prayer? This week and next, we're continuing a topical series that we began back in August on the disciplines of a, of a godly church. What are the biblically prescribed habits of a church that's growing into maturity in Christ? We're not aiming to discover the habits of a church that has it all together because no church has it all together. Rather, we want to see the patterns of a church that, that is intentionally shaping itself after the commands and patterns of the New Testament in conformity to the image of Christ. In August, we looked at the first two habits, the first two disciplines of gathering and listening. And this week and next, we'll look at the next two habits that mark God-glorifying churches. The church must pray together, and the church must sing together. This morning, I'm not pulling the main idea from a particular text of Scripture in an expositional way as we normally do. Rather, this, this main idea that you see there in your bulletin is really kind of the summary statement for the sermon. Here's the main idea. A godly church is a praying church. 
Very simple. A godly church is a praying church. We'll look at two points this morning to help us understand why this is so. Number one, why the church must pray. What does the Bible say about the church praying? Why must we pray? Number two, what the praying church does. Beloved, prayer is among the the highest privileges that we as Christians have. In prayer, we who were formerly enemies of God now have the high honor of entering the throne room of the high king of heaven, not merely as citizens of the kingdom, but as children in the family of God. We call upon him as our father through the work of his son who secured this relationship through his death upon the cross in his current intercession at the right hand of the Father. Friends, think of this. We have the privilege of talking to the creator of the galaxies with the confidence that he delights to hear us and answer us. So if that's the case, if if prayer is such a high privilege for Christians, why is corporate prayer often neglected when it comes to our understanding of what a church does? I'm sure there are several reasons, but let me suggest two at the outset of the sermon. First of all, I think the first reason that churches often neglect corporate prayer is that we conceive of prayer as a purely individual activity. And of course, we ought to spend time in regular intentional prayer, personally. We know our Lord Jesus did this, right? He deliberately took times by himself to pray. We think of the intensely personal prayers of the Psalms. We remember Hannah's earnest prayer for a child and Jonah's solitary prayer for deliverance from the, from the belly of the fish. We could go on and on. The scripture is replete, isn't it, with examples of personal prayer. However, perhaps we forget that prayer is also, in the Bible, a profoundly corporate activity. Perhaps in our American individualistic approach to life, we've deceived ourselves into thinking that within Christianity, we as individuals need an individual faith that kind of fits our specific needs. It's just me and Jesus. I'll pray in the way that's best for me. We've forgotten often that to be in Christ, friends, is to be united to his people. The Christian life is the the church life, isn't it? Therefore, our spiritual habits by nature have a church shape to them. When we pray, we pray as a member of a body and as a brother or sister in a family. But besides that individualistic concept of prayer, here's another reason that corporate prayer is often neglected. It's not trendy. You won't find a regular prayer meeting as part of the latest church growth strategies. Prayer is not sexy. It takes work and intentional time and effort. Maybe in our culture's preoccupation with efficiency and the American evangelicals fixation on what draws a crowd, perhaps without even realizing it, we've jettisoned the very activity that sustains our life. We've forgotten that our God acts through the prayers of his people. So brothers and sisters, we must pray. But don't just take my word for it. Let's look at the scripture together. Number one, why the church must pray. Martin Lloyd-Jones once called corporate prayer the very essence and life of the church. 
Well, thankfully, if that's true, the Lord has not left us in the dark about why this is so. Open the New Testament and the practice and the priority of corporate prayer leaps off the the pages of Scripture. This morning, we're going to look at three reasons why corporate prayer should be a central hallmark of our church. Number one, the instruction of Jesus. Number two, the pattern of the early church. And number three, the commands of the apostles. Let's look at this first reason in the instruction of Jesus. Turn to Matthew 6, if you would. Matthew chapter 6, it's on page 811. Have your turning fingers ready this morning. We're going to be flipping around the Bible, okay? Matthew chapter 6, page 811. Friends, in Matthew 6, Jesus teaches us to pray. But just before the Lord's Prayer, Jesus has has condemned, hasn't he, the the showy externalism of the Pharisees who, who pray to be seen or heard. In verse 9, Jesus provides a counterexample of how to pray. And given the fact that he has just eviscerated the self-righteousness of the Pharisees, and and he's even instructed his disciples to to pray humbly in secret, in, in contrast to their pride, you'd think the type of prayer that Jesus would teach us to pray would be purely individual, purely personal. But look at the first words of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Friends, in the opening words of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus reminds us that in prayer, we don't merely have a vertical relationship. We have a horizontal one too. We're not the lone child in a single child family. It's not my Father, but our Father. So we should not pray to impress other people, but our prayers should certainly involve other people. We pray with our brothers and sisters united together in Christ as children of our Heavenly Father. And it doesn't just stop there, does it? Jesus continues, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Friends, the Lord's Prayer is an invitation to corporate prayer. Turn over to Mark chapter 11. Mark 11, it's on page 847 if you're using one of the Bibles under our seats. In this passage, Jesus has, has entered Jerusalem for the last week before he was crucified. What does he do? He goes to the temple in Jerusalem and finds the That in the temple, instead of being a a place of worship, the temple has become a a place of commerce where hustling merchants and and pigeon salesmen could make a profit off those who needed an animal to sacrifice. So what did Jesus do? He famously overturned their money tables and he drove them out of the temple. And then in verse 17, Mark 11, 17, Jesus says this, quoting Isaiah chapter 56. Is it not written... My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Friends, do you see what Jesus did in that moment? He zealously guarded the priority of the priority of prayer in corporate worship for God's people. The temple wasn't for a monetary monetary transaction but for a transaction that is profoundly spiritual between God and his people. God designed the temple to be a house of prayer. Friends, less than a week later, our Lord Jesus would die on the cross and do away with the need for a physical temple altogether. 
He, the one greater than the temple, is now the access point between God and man. He's the mediator. He's our great high priest. The Apostle Paul would later write in Ephesians 2 that all those, all those of us now who are connected to Christ by faith are together, the church being built up into what? A holy temple. Isaiah's vision of the temple being a house of prayer is no longer carried out at a certain physical location in Jerusalem, but by the people of God, wherever they gather in Christ's name. We, together in Christ, the local church, are the house of prayer for all nations. Prayer highlights the unity that we have as a diverse people. So, beloved, our Lord Jesus taught us about the privilege of, of corporate prayer. He spoke of prayer often in corporate language. We, the church, must pray together. But not only let's, look at, let's not only look at the instruction of Jesus, let's look at the pattern of the early church. The book of Acts records the development of the early church. We know this, and the spread of the gospel from, from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth after Jesus ascended. Friends, in Acts, we see the most clear picture of what the church valued. And because we believe God's word to be sufficient for our faith and practice, we understand that until Jesus returns, local churches in this day should prioritize what we see in the book of Acts. So what do we see in Acts? Friends, did you know that in, in Acts is 28 chapters, there are 20 explicit occasions of Christians praying together. 20 explicit occasions of Christians praying together in Acts. And many more occasions where it was implied. Turn over to Acts 1. It's page 909. Acts chapter 1. Christians in Acts prayed together regularly and intentionally. Here in Acts 1, Jesus had just ascended to heaven. Now, friends, you might think that the, surely the residue of Jesus' actual physical presence with his disciples would carry them through for a while. But no. When Christ ascended, his people, his people immediately turned to prayer. Notice that in verse 14, Luke writes that the apostles and early Christians were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. They had gathered to pray about who would be the next apostle replacing Judas. In Acts 2.1, Luke indicates again that together the church waited for the risen Christ to fulfill his promise to pour his spirit out upon his people. And friends, while Pentecost is unique in redemptive history, let's just note that God acted according to his promise while his people gathered, presumably, to pray. We don't have time to look at all 20 examples of corporate prayer and acts, so unless you're fearful that we're going to do that, that's not what we're going to do. But let's look at a few more examples. Turn quickly to Acts 4. Acts chapter 4. Peter and John lead a prayer meeting of the church immediately after being released from prison. Acts 4, we're going to read just a few verses, starting in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had, had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then buoyed by God's sovereignty, friends, and their vision of God's work through the, through the Messiah, now the, the risen and, and exalted Christ, the church prayed together for boldness in the face of persecution. Turn to Acts 6. Acts chapter 6. In Acts 6, the church chooses seven men to attend to the practical matters of the, of the church so that the disciples could focus on, on ministry of the word and prayer. And look what the church did after they selected these, these men who were kind of like deacon forerunners. Look at Acts 6, 6. These men, they sat before the apostles and they prayed and they laid hands on them. Now flip to Acts 12. I told you, you've got to have your fingers ready today. Acts 12. Peter in Acts 12 is now back in prison. And guess what the church does since Peter's in prison? Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Friends, the church gathered in a house to pray for Peter's deliverance from prison. And guess what happened? In response to their prayers, the Lord's angel set Peter free. And Peter then showed up at that very prayer meeting. The Puritan Thomas Watson wrote, The angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. Finally, just next door to Acts 12, let's look at Acts 13. Acts 13, verses 1 to 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, this, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Beloved, the Holy Spirit called the very first missionaries of the church, and then the church sent them off in the context of corporate worship and corporate prayer. And these are just really five examples of the 20 recorded in Acts. Now, I know there's a danger in preaching a sermon like this, where we're going to multiple passages and kind of looking at this topic together, and kind of just, it feels like a data dump, right? Just a, just a load of information, information boom! But friends, my goal is not to give us information this morning, but really to carpet bomb our consciences with an understanding that the earliest churches of Jesus Christ were comprised of a praying people. They were united and devoted to the work of the gospel and witness to the resurrected Christ. But before they did gospel work together, the church did prayer work together. In fact, they recognized the work of prayer to be an integral part of the work of the gospel. They prayed in their Sunday worship gatherings. They prayed in separate gatherings of the entire church. They prayed in smaller groups and homes and even at riverside prayer meetings. The apostles prayed together. Church elders prayed together. Men and women and children prayed together. Friends, the church prayed together in desperate times and in normal times. They prayed in the face of danger and in times of calm. They prayed for one another and for those whom they sent out from them. You can trace it out for yourself. You don't have to be a biblical scholar to do this. Just get your Bible app, right? And enter the word 
Pray or prayer and look at the examples in the book of Acts. And you'll see that wherever the gospel goes in Acts, churches are established. And wherever churches are established, there you'll find a praying people who then repeat the gospel cycle. Friends, you get the sense from the book of Acts that it would have been abnormal for believers to gather and not spend time praying together. It's just what Christians do. It's not... It wasn't an opt-in or opt-out type of thing. They prioritized it intentionally in their life together. Beloved, I hope that when people come into our gatherings from the outside, when they rub shoulders with us in our lives, they'll think, boy, those people in Redeeming Grace Church pray an awful lot. That would be a wonderful reputation to have. These people have a reverence in their posture before the Lord. They they didn't come to church to watch a show. They didn't come to be entertained. They came to engage with their God. Mark Dever, a pastor in Washington, D.C., wrote this. Let's spend so much time praying in our public services that some people grow bored talking to the God that they only pretend to know. Yes and amen. We design our our worship gatherings here at Redeeming Grace as precisely that. They are worship gatherings. They're designed for the worship and edification of God's people. And in that way, we hope they're very evangelistic. And we expect that God's people who gather to worship love to pray together. Yet, it's clear from the pattern of the earliest local churches that prayer wasn't just an item on the Sunday a.m. checklist. It was the activity of Christians throughout the week. It wasn't something that only happened during the normal business hours of the gathered church, but the ongoing practice of the scattered church. You know, one way our church tries to to emulate this pattern is through our house-to-house groups that meet every other week throughout the Southwest Valley. In in addition to studying the the week's sermon uh, from the prior Sunday, our house-to-house groups spend intentional and significant time praying for one another. We ask our our house-to-house groups to, to, number one, spend time praying for the church as a whole, okay? Pray for the preaching of the word. Pray for the the whole church body-wide requests. And then spend time praying for each other as a way to care for one another. So friend, if you're a part of our church family and you are not connected to a house-to-house group, you really are missing out on a wonderful opportunity to pray with members of your church family, to pray and to be prayed for. But let me encourage you, you don't have to wait till house to house to pray together. When you meet for a Bible study, spend time in prayer. When you share a meal with other church family, pray for each other. When you're hanging out on a play date with with another mom and your kids or you're sitting at a coffee shop or you're watching a sports game, you're watching the Raiders lose and one of your brothers or sisters mentions a burden or struggle, friends, don't waste that opportunity. Don't waste that opportunity. Instead of saying, hey, I'll be praying for you, why don't you say, hey, can we pray now about this? Can I lift you up to the Lord right now? It's a way to show tangibly the love of Christ, to care for that person. I guarantee you, praying together will encourage you and them. The pattern of the early church reveals that God's people pray together regularly. We not only see the instruction of Jesus and the the pattern of the early church, we see explicit commands of the apostles. The third reason why we should pray. 
I'm talking here about the, the clear instruction of the New Testament. Given the pattern of local churches in the apostolic era, really you would be surprised if you did not find apostolic instruction about corporate prayer. And indeed we do. Paul instructed the Roman church in Romans 12, 12, be constant in prayer. He reiterated this same idea two other times in the epistles. He told the Colossian church in chapter 4, verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. He wrote to the Thessalonian church in chapter 5, verse 17, pray without ceasing. In other words, friends, prayer isn't something that we turn to only in times of crisis, but also in times of ease. Not merely in times of need, but also in times of plenty. Not just in the bad times, but in the good times as well. The regular rhythms of our life as Christians should be filled to the brim with prayer. John Stott compared prayer to breathing. He said this, To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. In other words, friends, when the Holy Spirit by grace makes a person alive in Christ, they'll be by nature begin to breathe the oxygen of prayer and communion with the Father. But we do need to ask this. Did Paul and the apostles intend their commands about prayer to be carried out by individuals only? Or is prayer like breathing for the local church too? Again, given our individualistic culture, our tendency is to understand these commands of Paul as merely having a, a purely uh, individual, personal application. And again, I don't get me wrong, in no way do I want you to think that, that, that we as elders or that I as the, the, the senior pastor here undervalue personal, individual prayer. No way, that's not what I'm doing. But friends, the, the apostles' instruction about prayer is not just binding for individuals. It's binding for the church as a whole. After all, Paul wrote the majority of his epistles as letters to whom? To churches, that's right, to local churches as a whole. These letters of Paul were to be read out loud at the church's gathering. Did you know that just a few sentences after Paul wrote, pray without ceasing, he wrote this, brothers, pray for us. Brothers, pray for us. Who were these brothers? Well, Paul was referring to the church as a whole. Friends, the local church is not merely a roster of individuals who pray privately, like a chess team, right? No, the church is a collective unit. It's far more like a, a basketball team than a, than a chess team. We are a congregation, and we ought to pray together. So the question is, when? When ought the local church to pray together? Well, certainly prayer must be part of our, our church's weekly Lord's Day gathering. Right here, what we're doing right now. It's clear from 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Timothy 1, you could study those chapters on your own, that corporate worship must, not can, must include corporate prayer. But remember what we saw in the pattern of the, of the church in Acts? The, the church didn't just pray together on the Lord's Day. They, they prayed together all the time. And this pattern is also reflected in specific commands too. So we read these earlier in the service. We read from Ephesians 6 that we're to pray 
in order to arm ourselves with the Spirit's armor and the necessary weapons to move the gospel forward despite the, the, the opposition of our enemy. Listen again to verses 17 to 19 of Ephesians 6. You can turn there if you want. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Friend, Paul's language in Ephesians 6 is just undeniably pervasive. All times, all prayer, with all perseverance. Again, this is the expectation not just for individuals, but for the church together. Now, admittedly, admittedly, while the New Testament is clear about the what, it provides a bit of flexibility about the how and the when. In some ways, it'd be a lot easier, wouldn't it, if the, if the apostles just gave us the command, pray together in the evening on the Lord's Day. Make sure that you pray as a church at least twice a month. Well, that would be a lot easier, but that's not what the New Testament does. Instead, the New Testament simply reveals the normative pattern for local churches. We are to be a people that prays together. There's a bit of flexibility about how each church applies these commands and emulates the pattern. But I think what's clear, friends, is, is this should be able to be said about every local church of Jesus Christ, including our own. That's a church that loves to pray together. And it's clear that they love to pray, to pray together by their habits, by their patterns together. Beloved, in matters of wisdom and expediency for local churches where we take some of that, that gray area of flexibility and we apply it to specific local churches, regarding decisions about what's best for a particular congregation, the Lord has given elders to the church to lead the church in carrying out biblical priorities. And friends, here's what the elders of Redeeming Grace Church believe is best for our church as we seek to be faithful to the Lord. Number one, first, application of corporate prayer, apart from our house to house, that's already been mentioned. We're going to include robust times of prayer in our Sunday morning gatherings. Our corporate prayer on Sunday morning typically uh, are, are longer prayers and somewhat formal. Uh, we ask those who lead us in prayer on Sunday mornings to prepare ahead of time so that our prayers together are particularly thoughtful and worshipful and reverent and edifying. You'll also notice that on Sunday morning, we include different types of prayers in our, in our gathering that we hope reflect the types of prayers we see in the New Testament and throughout the Bible. So we include prayers of praise, which we seek to worship God for who He is and what He's done. We have prayers of confession, like Steve led us in this morning, which we corporately repent of sin and renew our hearts with God's mercy in Christ. And then we regularly uh, pray together a prayer of intercession and in the pastoral prayer. So we're going to include robust times of prayer in our gatherings on Sunday morning. The second way that we, that we try to be uh, faithful in corporate prayer here at Redeeming Grace is that we have a prayer gathering, a dedicated prayer gathering every other month on the second Sunday of each month. That's our pattern right now. Friends, this service, is, as I've said before, you've heard me say this, this service is not a Sunday morning service 2.0. It is an entirely different format. 
Whereas our, our prayers on Sunday morning are, are typically uh, a little bit more formal, they're planned, and they're a bit on the long side, <laughs> our prayers on Sunday evening are typically spontaneous. They're informal, and they're on the short side. In, in our Sunday evening prayer times, we, we pray for a variety of things. We pray for whole church requests. We, we pray for the effectiveness of the regular preaching and teaching of God's Word. Uh, we pray together that the Lord would work in the lives of our children and youth. We pray for the conversion of unbelievers who attend our gatherings. We pray regularly that, the, that God would develop in us a culture of evangelism and discipleship. We pray in our, in our prayer meetings for unity and wisdom and guidance in major decisions that the church makes. Friends, by, by praying for these kind of manifold various things, we, we not only hope that God will answer our prayers for the good of the church and the glory of his name, we hope it helps you our church family, grow in understanding what types of things that you should be praying for our church. In a way, we're, we're catechizing our church by the types of things we pray for. But in addition to these whole church requests, we also on Sunday nights especially focus on our mission together. We understand that, that we need the Spirit's enabling to help us to make disciples here in the Southwest Valley and around the world. And so we pray for the Lord's help as we seek to be a gospel people. We pray for ourselves and our personal evangelism and discipleship. We pray for our supported workers and their ministry around the world. Friends, praying for our evangelism and our discipleship, it reminds us that we are not Lone Ranger evangelists, right? We're not merely individual Christians. We do this work of evangelism together. Friends, we are great commission teammates here at Redeeming Grace Church. Our hope is that being aware of how to pray for one another's disciple-making will help mobilize our church together for that task. So, beloved, if you're a member of Redeeming Grace Church, I would urge you, do not neglect our prayer gatherings. Each of us is committed in our church covenant. We've made this promise to each other, not to neglect the great duty of prayer, both for ourselves and for others. And our prayer gathering is a primary way that the elders believe helps us carry out this promise that we've made to each other. In fact, I, I would go so far as to say that, that our elders expect our church family to gather to pray in our prayer meetings. We certainly try to communicate that expectation in our membership class, in RGC in three, and in our conversations with prospective members. And, you know, some people might object, or you, maybe even you're sitting here objecting and saying, well, isn't that an extra biblical expectation? Kind of, but, but not really. You'll not find a chapter and verse commanding attendance at a prayer meeting. But friends, I hope this sermon has convinced you of the biblical priority of corporate prayer. And I hope you'll heavily consider the way in which we as elders believe that Redeeming Grace Church best implements this priority in the life of our church. Spurgeon said this, the condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. So is the prayer meeting a grace-ometer. The prayer meeting is a grace-ometer, and from it we may judge of the amount of divine working among a people. Listen, I understand that some of us are providentially hindered from attending our prayer meetings because of jobs and such, but my guess is, friends, that that's not most of us. Is it always convenient to come back on Sunday night to pray? No, not always. 
But friends, the, the minute we start ordering our Christian habits according to convenience is the moment we lose sight of what it means to deny ourselves and to follow Christ and to give ourselves for the good of others. Brothers and sisters, as much as I want you to feel in your bones some of the duty to gather to pray as a church, let's remember that this, this Christian duty we have together is not drudgery. Our responsibility to pray together is not a heavy burden. Instead, when we gather to pray, we invoke the privilege that we have as sons and daughters of the King. Friends, what prayer does together, it pushes us deeper into our family inheritance. Corporate prayer heightens our experience of our union with Christ and our communion with each other. So, beloved, let us pray. We've seen why the church must pray. Now let's look at the second main point this morning. More briefly, what the praying church does. In our remaining time this morning, I want us to move on from the biblical why to the biblical what. When we pray together, what's, what's happening? What's, what's the spiritual machinery at work underneath the surface? What things are we cultivating in our, in our collective discipleship together when we pray? I'm going to mention three things. Don't have much time left, so I'm going to mention three things. Number one, when we pray together, we're admitting our, our dependence. The church admits her dependence. Number two, she unites around God's purposes. And number three, the church prizes God's glory. Number one, the church admits her dependence when we pray together. You know what we do when we pray together, friends? We verbalize reality. We acknowledge what is true. We admit together that God is sovereign and we are not. We ask for things that God alone can provide. We confess our great need and that our sufficiency in ministry is in God, not in us. Do you remember how the church prayed? We read it earlier after Peter and John's release from prison. You remember how that prayer began? Oh, sovereign Lord. <laughs> I love that. It's an acknowledgement of who God is. They cast themselves fully upon God, the one who reigns as king over all. Friends, such is the realistic and necessarily necessary posture of a godly church. It's us. It's us. It's us, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Why would the early church pray, friends, about Judas' replacement in Acts 1? They knew they didn't have the resources to make that decision. Why did the church at Jerusalem pray for the newly appointed servants in Acts 6? And for Peter in Acts 12 in the house prayer meeting? Why did the church at Antioch pray for Paul and Barnabas in Acts 13 before they sent them off? It was an acknowledgement of their complete and utter dependence upon God to act. You see, friends, corporate prayer both reflects and shapes. Corporate prayer both reflects and shapes. It reflects a church's perspective while at the same time shaping its perspective further. A church's prayerlessness really evidences a functional godlessness. In, in fact, Old Testament scholar Alec Moitier wrote that to abandon prayer is to embrace atheism. 
A church void of deliberate, regular prayer is silently professing not to need God in their life and ministry. Prayerlessness is evidence of corporate pride and corporate apathy. Friends, it's, it's also to live in a fantasy world, right? If praying is, is verbalizing reality, then not to pray is really living in a fantasy world. When we don't pray, it's like we, we put on the, the spiritual version of the, the new Facebook Oculus, right? And we just live in a, a world of a virtual reality of our own making. We're completely detached from what is true and, and real. But friends, a, a church that, that drops to her knees and regularly calls upon God to act that church lives in alignment with reality and what God's purposes are for her. Our prayer life evidences a posture of humility. Friends, you know what the scripture says? God resists the proud, but he gives grace to whom? The humble. It's to the humble that, the, that he directs his gaze. But friends, prayer not only evidences humility and dependence, it further shapes humility and dependence. When we pray together, it's like a tiller in the soil of our hearts. Prayer is, is cultivating humility in us. It's a shared spiritual discipline together and a means of growing in that type of humility together. In corporate prayer, we tamp down pride and we magnify our God. Friends, if we as a church rely on organization, we'll get what organization can do. If we rely on church marketing, ah, we'll get it. We'll get more people that walk in the doors. We'll get what church marketing can do. If we rely on snazzy programs, we'll get what snazzy programs can do. If I rely on my eloquence, well, I'll get what my eloquence can do, and that's not much. But friends, when we rely upon prayer together, we'll receive what we truly need. We'll get what God alone can do. The praying church admits her dependence. Number two, the church together praying unites around God's purposes. You know, there are so many things that threaten to pull a church apart. And in some ways, it feels like we start from a distance apart, doesn't it? After all, we come from a variety of backgrounds and ethnicities and, and opinions on various issues. But friends, don't trust in appearances. Together, we share a common bond in Christ. In fact, one of the most profound things that the gospel does is that it breaks down barriers that humanity erects and it reconciles us together in Christ. Yet we know that even as the forgiven ones, as those who have received God's grace in Christ, we still sin in many ways. And the Apostle Paul understood the threats. He knew that disunity could spread like gangrene and disrupt the, the unity and the love of a church's fellowship. He anticipated the things that, that could, could sever that relationship with each other and so dim the church's gospel witness. That's why Paul instructed the Ephesians, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Beloved, we are not after uniformity, are we, in this church? but we are after unity in diversity. We don't pursue a cookie-cutter Christianity, but a spirit-soaked unity in the gospel. And one of the primary ways that we cultivate this type of unity is to pray together. When we pray together, the Lord knits our hearts in love one for another and grants us a common desire to do God's will. 
Those of you who are married, you know how this works, right? Let's just say you have an argument with your spouse. It would never happen to us, but I'm sure it's happened to you. During a conflict, you know what? If you and your, and your spouse pause and you say, let's, let's pray about this, you simply cannot remain at odds. Or if you do, your prayers are just not going to work right. Even experientially, in the way it feels, it will feel like this, something is wrong here. You can't pray to God in freedom and joy and love if you're harboring something against the one whom you're praying with. So it is in the church. Corporate prayer is both a catalyst and result of gospel unity. It catalyzes it and it results from it. Praying for each other's good forces us, doesn't it, to kind of leave behind our own selfish ambition and our pride and focus on God's glory and each other's corporate good and individual good. But friends, corporate prayer not only unifies us in the abstract, guess what? Guess what happens? We become united around the things for which we pray. For instance, when the, when the church at Thessalonica responded to Paul's instruction, he, he invited them and instructed them, pray that through my ministry, the word of God might speed ahead and be honored. It's one of my favorite prayers in the whole Bible. Pray that the word might speed ahead like a, like a running athlete and be honored when it wins. I guarantee you that the church at Thessalonica's corporate prayer helped align by praying that prayer for Paul. It helped align their hearts around God's purpose for Paul's ministry. Similarly, when, when I or another elder leads us in the pastoral prayer on Sunday mornings, we trust that, that God might unite our hearts together around his purposes for our church, for, for other local churches in Arizona, for churches around the world, for his will to be done in the leadership of, of our government officials and so on. This is one reason why in our Sunday evening prayer gatherings, we emphasize corporate needs over individual needs. We emphasize spiritual requests over physical requests. It's not that we never pray for those things. It's not that we think individual requests or physical requests are kind of like the, the second-class citizens of prayer. No, we want to be praying for each other in those things, and that's certainly one thing we do in our house-to-house -house groups. But we want our corporate prayer at RGC to build concern for our corporate unity and our corporate witness. In a sense, this type of prayer catechizes our church about what's most important. And here's one practical way, friends, that we encourage this type of unity around God's purposes. Whenever, whether it's on Sunday morning or Sunday night, whenever the person leading in prayer says, in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, let's verbally and enthusiastically respond with a congregational amen. It means, yes, this is true. Yes, indeed, I agree. We're publicly affirming that we, the gathered church, agree with what was just said. You know, friends, I would love it after every single prayer, whether it's led by me or someone else, after every single prayer at Redeeming Grace Church, it was like a, a jolt of affirmation electricity just kind of crackles through this room. I think it would be great if amen rang out like a thunderclap after each prayer. It helps remind each other that we do this work of prayer together. Finally, the last thing we're going to look at this morning that prayer does, or the praying church does. The praying church prizes God's glory. 
Friends, if you miss everything else, please get this point. In corporate prayer, God gets corporate glory. When we come together with the express goal of publicly asking our God for His help and His empowering and His favor, He receives public glory when He answers us. And even if He chooses not to answer our requests in the way that we would wish, guess what? He still gets corporate glory by our heightened submission to His will. Listen to what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 1.11. He's writing to them about his own deliverance from peril in his missionary ministry. He says this, 2 Corinthians 1.11, you, that second person plural in the Greek, y'all, <laughs> y'all, y'all also must help us by prayer so that, here's the purpose, purpose statement, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Did you get that, friends? What will happen as the church helps Paul by prayer? Many will give thanks to God for answering prayer and preserving Paul. Friends, corporate asking, corporate prayer leads to corporate praise. The church praying results in God's glory being prized. Friends, is this not God's great aim in the world? Isn't this why he created in the beginning? Isn't this why he purposed to redeem a people for himself in Christ? So that his name might be made to look great as it really is by a worshiping people. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We pray so that we might prize His glory, not our own. That we might promote Him, not ourselves. This is our number one goal in our prayer life together. Not to us. Not us, O oh Lord. But to Your name, give glory. And yet in this corporate glorifying of God, we find our own ultimate corporate good, don't we? We taste and see His goodness together as we come to prize His glory. Friends, just think about just in the last few months, think of the ways in which God has answered our corporate prayers. We prayed earnestly for the Lord to deliver specific Afghan brothers and sisters after the Taliban's takeover. And the Lord miraculously answered our prayers and the prayers of many believers across the world. And today, those Afghan believers are safe within the confines of our country. We prayed corporately for our sister Helene's cancer battle, and the Lord answered our prayers in ways that even defied her doctor's expectations. Friend, every time we gather, we pray regular, simple prayers for unity and wisdom and guidance and love. Friends, and our Lord has answered those requests time and time again. In corporate asking, God gets corporate praise, and our faith is strengthened in the process. So friend, do you want God to be magnified in this way among us? I hope so. Do you want more of, the, of His work to be visibly and even tangibly experienced here at Redeeming Grace Church? I hope so. Do you want to see Him on the move in our city through our church? Oh, I hope so. Well, if these are the things that we desire together, then beloved, we must pray for those things. In many ways, praying together 
helps prepare ourselves for God to act. And by preparing ourselves for Him to act, we prepare ourselves to give Him glory when He does. Let's pray. Our Father, we echo the words of the psalmist this morning that we just read, not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name, give glory. O Father, our Father, who who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. O Lord, we ask that through our prayers, through our habit, our regular pattern of praying together, Father, you might be honored and you might pour out your goodness in and through us as a church. Oh, Father, if, as I preached this sermon and, and shared your word, if, if obstacles to, to our church becoming a praying church begin to rise in individuals' hearts, oh, Father, please uh, break down those obstacles. Help us to be willing to submit to your purposes for us. Oh, Father, make us a praying people individually, but give us a thirst to pray together corporately, we ask. Oh, Father, we want each other's good. We want to love each other earnestly with the compassion and love of Jesus. And Father, impress upon our hearts that the best way we can do that is not to do things for each other, although those things are good, but first and foremost, and before any doing, to pray for one another. Oh, Father, we ask that the gospel might go from this place powerfully. Father, we want to be used as a church to make disciples here in the Southwest Valley and around the world. We want to see believers sent out from us to plant churches and to spread the gospel abroad. We want to have a hand in, in seeing the gospel flourish in, in Arizona and in, in the valley and around the world. Oh, Father, if we're going to see that happen through our church, we must pray. And so, Father, we ask that you would make us a praying people. Make us dependent upon you. Oh, Father, cause us to see our need, we pray. And then unite our heart, hearts around this purpose. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.